Last evening, I was a guest in the home of Randy and Rhonda, where I noticed when I walked in a cookbook lying on the kitchen countertop, a cookbook that had been created by Rhonda when she was just a little girl, a cookbook that she has perfected over the years, and a perfection that her guests that night enjoyed very much. And then afterward, I went into Randy's office where he regaled me with his books, but especially his sports memorabilia, baseballs caught at a game, and Astros bobblehead dolls. I mistook the one hat on little bobblehead doll for a New York Yankee, and so Randy had to give me a timeout, and I, I stood outside for five minutes, then came back in, not really. These are, these are all symbols of a joyful pastime, joyful pastimes of life. But as always, the most treasured moments are the conversations that take place, where we share stories of grief and stories of hope, opportunities and challenges in life, the hospitality, the generosity, the community experience, and the conversation that happen, I think are the key to building a healthy congregation here at 1548 Heights. Before we read the text that will prompt this sermon, and I want to take just a little, I want to be a, I don't want to rush this one, because I think it uh, roots us in who we are and where we are today. But to introduce us to our text, I'd like for you to think of, in normal times, what a particular city might call to mind when I say Washington, D.C., for example. You might think of the capital or power or government. When I say Fort Knox, if you're like me, I've never been there. But when somebody says Fort Knox, I think of gold bricks, don't you? Paris, France, fine restaurants, romance. Phoenix, in some ways the opposite of Houston, dry but hot. A cactus comes to mind. And on we could go, Chicago, San Francisco, Detroit. Certain cities call to mind specific images and ideals. And in the ancient world, Athens, Athens meant culture and architecture, education and philosophy. And even though Athens in New Testament days had already lost some of the sparkle that it had enjoyed the reputation that came with the lights of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates. Still, it had so much history and a lot of art and a lot of philosophy. And even 2,000 years later, I am told that the Parthenon is visually satisfying. All of this is build up the canvas for the portrait that Luke will paint for us a portrait that is delivered in six short verses that is the context for the sermon that he will deliver. Here then is the context. <clears throat> Paul was waiting in Athens. While he was waiting there, his spirit was being agitated as he was observing a city full of idols. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, but he was in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Some of the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Some were saying, oh, what does this idle babbler have to say? Others 
He seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was proclaiming the resurrection from the dead. And so they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know this new teaching that you're proclaiming, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears, and we want to know what this means. And then Luke, in the parenthetical statement, ends this description by saying, now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing more than wanting to hear something new. Luke mentions the Areopagus, which was that low hill in Athens with stone seats where the political council would meet and the powers of government would be, meet. But Luke wants us to focus our eyes on the philosophers who are there. He trains our eyes on the Epicureans and the Stoics. The Epicureans have been around for a few hundred years, and they believe that sense perception, what you see, what you hear, what you can touch and taste, that's the only way of determining reality. That's it, sense perception. People thought that the Epicureans were atheists because they scoffed at the fear of death. They scoffed at the possibility of God. Epicureans, in some ways, believe that we be, when we die, we become like atoms, dissolved into the air, plop, plop, fizz, fizz, and poof, we're gone, just like that. The Epicureans did not believe in the afterlife. And the other philosophical group that Luke focuses our attention on are the Stoics, and they're best known for their emphasis on moral conduct. The only way to control life, the Stoics thought, was to control your passions, Self-control led to freedom, always kind of a quarantine on life. And like the Epicureans, the Stoics had no hope for life after death. And so Luke completes this setting for his portrait with a generalization that the Athenians were entertained by listening to new ideas. And that's the cultural backdrop that Luke imagines for us in six verses. If you had six verses, which is all that Luke takes, how would you describe our cultural setting, our society? How would you describe the Heights, Houston, Texas, the United States of America? Not too long ago, I asked a Bible class that very question. It wasn't here, it was elsewhere. But I said, how would you describe our society? And there, descriptions revealed the kind of spirit that Luke says that Paul had, agitated. <laughs> One person said, everybody's a pleasure seeker. Another person said, this country is full of self-absorbed people. Another person cited the best-selling book she had recently seen on Oprah, Be As Rich As You Want to Be. That's our society. But the most agitated person that spoke in that class painted this image of a 21st century America. He said, single mother standing in line at the 7-Eleven buying a lottery ticket. Whew. Negative images from agitated people. What's your assessment of our culture, of the Heights, of Houston, of Texas, of the United States of America? Paul's situation is in Athens seems to be pretty negative, a city full of idols, and his spirit is agitated, we're told. 
just like the Bible class. Yet notice when he starts to preach how positive he seems. And now here is the sermon that follows the description I just read. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and he said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious in all aspects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Therefore, what you have worshipped in ignorance, I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and all things in it, since that God is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is this God served by human hands, as though this God needed anything since God gives to all people life and breath and all things. God made from one man every nation of humankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they, at that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though God is not far from each one of us. For in God we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of humankind. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all that all everywhere should repent, because God has fixed a day in which God will judge the world in righteousness through one whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all by raising that person from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, we'll hear you about this again. So Paul went out of their midst. Some joined him and believed. Among them was Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris, and there were others with them. Paul sounds so positive when he takes the opportunity to speak. He commends the Athenians as being very religious. He compliments their literature with this citation, as some of your own poets have said. And Paul almost compliments one altar to an unknown God. For an agitated spirit, this is pretty positive language, Paul is almost optimistic. He's certainly full of hope when he moves through the content of his sermon. God is the creator, he says. God is independent. God is the source of all. God is close and yet far off. God is our Father. Now the philosophers in Paul's audience must have loved the way Paul began. Imagine them verbally responding, mm-hmm, yes sir, well, preach it, nodding their heads in approval because Paul affirms their reality. Positive until Paul comes to a certain point positive until Paul moves away from their common beliefs. And the rub comes in verse 31 with his comment on the resurrection from the dead, to which some believed and some sneered. The Epicureans didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Stoics didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so our setting here at the Heights in Houston, Texas, is so much like Paul's Paul in non-Christian Athens. We live in a non-Christian land. Paul lived in a pre-Christian land, and we live in a post-Christian land. 
and that agitates us, and that provokes us. We share Paul's agitated spirit. The community assessment team, part of the search team, is discovering details about our community and our larger city, and not all of it is flattering. There's persistent poverty. There's children starving for a good education. There's some people who are hungry and without shelter. But what that survey that they're taking and doing such a great job on it is not built to capture is a certain spirit that's come over this country, this state, this city, this region right here since 2020. A million people died during COVID. The pandemic ended and then we went on about our business. But a sad impact still lingers. People still say today they feel alienated they feel vulnerable. They feel lonely. The year of COVID has deeply shaped us. And we feel Paul's agitation over the difficult conditions in our society, in our nation, in Houston, in the Heights. But in recent years, our response to our culture has not been to so much imitate Paul. We've tend to react in one of two extremes. On the one hand, we made a fuss, an entirely negative response, leaking our agitation about matters that have no ultimate meaning, that turn out to have no consequence whatsoever, and that became our focus. When I was a young Christian, when I first became a Christian, a good number of church folk were concerning themselves with, and I'm not making this up for you younger people, they concerned themselves with the length of men's hair <laughs> the length of women's skirts and rock music. That was the focus. <laughs> Years passed and we discovered that these matters are so trivial, we giggle at the mention of them. I do. They were of no consequence whatsoever. Topics, of course, changed over time, but the huff and the puff remained. The next generation, it was about this. Prayer postures at church. Can you, should you raise your hands? Can we use songbooks or should we use songbooks or overhead? Clapping hands, I witnessed a treasure walk out of church forever when the song leader encouraged people to clap their hands, which all turned out to be of no importance whatsoever. Every generation, church invents some meaningless occupation of our time and our energy while we ignore the life and death matters around us. The life and death matters that are crushing our nation, damaging our community. We are examining the paint on the cabin walls while the Titanic sinks. On the other hand, the other extreme, we've tried to blend in altogether to live a life so that no one could suspect that we are trying to follow Jesus Christ. We live incognito, like little green bugs on a green leaf, so nobody can see us. Nothing in our language, nothing in our worldview, nothing in how we spend our money, nothing in how we treat our fellow human beings that would set us apart as a people who are trying to follow Jesus Christ. How does Paul respond? Paul recognizes the Athenian culture, the Athenian beliefs as legitimate conversation partners in talking about God. He doesn't condemn the poets among us, 
Paul says the Greeks are searching for God and searching for meaning through their statues and their poetry and their philosophy. For Paul, Athenian religions are foundation for hearing about the Lord of heaven and earth. Paul isn't silent and he doesn't take up petty disputes. He picks up the rhythm and enters in at precisely the right moment, like jump roping. Oh, that we had such timing. Oh, that we had such skill to recognize the beat and the ability to enter into the life flow of our community. May the next minister for the church here at 1528 Heights be skilled at such timing and lead us all into the rhythms of this community. I received some time ago now, an email from an old friend. We hadn't communicated in a long time. We'd lost, lost touch. I heard that he had been struggling with his faith, but he had no conversation partners. The church where he had attended was <clears throat> debating about who could pass the communion trays and whether or not they should permit a guitar in the worship. The elders were arguing over the possibilities of restoring the church van or buying a new church van. And there was no time, and there was no place, and there was no interest to even talk about the cultural issues that impacted the community, a generation of people, and my friend. The church was watching the paint dry on the cabin walls while my friend quietly got into one of the lifeboats and drifted away. Part of my friend's case against Christianity was the narrow and misplaced focus of some of our churches. He had no dialogue partners for his passions for peace, for feeding the hungry. We're beginning to realize that we, like Paul, are living in a non-Christian society. It's agitating, I know. We live in a post-Christian society where church is a memory, or worse, where I come from, where church is the image of people who are opposed to kindness, opposed to helping the widow, the alien, the orphan. What are we to say to this? What would Paul say? Well, Paul wouldn't hide, nor would he focus on small-minded matters. Paul engaged culture at the macro level. He picked up on the longings of the Athenians, and he directed those longings to Jesus. Paul didn't quote much scripture in this sermon. You probably noticed that. The Athenians had little interest or insight into scripture. Instead, he appeals to their knowledge of creation. He appeals to a common humanity. For Paul, God made the world and all that is in it, he says. God can't be captured by buildings. Our true purpose, Paul says, is in God's service. So what do we say? And where do we start? We can begin with who we are and where we live. We don't live in New York City. We're not situated in Southern California. We're not members of a mega church in Nashville, Tennessee. We don't live, or do we, among the Stoics and the Epicureans. The community assessment team is addressing that very question, who is our neighbor? What does our community look like? What are their specific and pressing needs? And what can we as the church do to be an effective help in time of trouble? Their research and findings are critical 
to our work ahead. The truth is, of course, you've already shown your cards. You've already shown your character and your instincts. When Harvey hit Houston in 2017 and flooded a portion of this building, a core team was committed to cleanup and to the prayerful revitalization of the ministries and the outreach of this congregation. And now the current efforts to share and to transform and to serve, in your words, actively living out Jesus' devotion to the overlooked and the oppressed. This is the history of this congregation, the recent history. And this is the recent history that will be told to the recommenders and the potential candidates to be a minister with this congregation. So what do we say? Where do we start? We begin with who we are and where we live. We begin with the church at 1548 Heights, fortunate to be located in the midst of people who after you remove the labels of income and education and race and so on, are human beings. People, men, women, with specific needs, just like us. What do you say? Our Lord has taught us the grammar of faith. Our Lord taught us words like, understandings like feed the hungry, love your neighbor as you love yourself. And once we've mastered the grammar of faith, then we're positioned to engage the modern day Epicureans and the Stoics. After we've fed the hungry, then we can look up to the stars and point out the designer. After we've clothed the naked, then we can talk of our great hope. We can speak of our hope, a hope within, a hope that there exists something beyond this life. In this society of ours, right here at 1548 Heights, the neighbors, our neighbor's grammar is loneliness and some poverty and certainly struggle. That's the language on the street. That's the grammar of our community. And what do we do? What do we do? In the past, some churches, when the language of the community got close, the church got agitated and provoked, and they pulled up their resources, and they moved, and they started talking about their safety and their comfort zones. But not this church, not in our recent past, and not in our future. We will remember the language of faith. We'll remember the grammar of Jesus, and we'll express the same hope that Paul expressed in Athens, and step into the opportunities that will open to us precisely as they opened to Paul in Athens. Because we know and we've always known that we are the salt of the earth. That if the salt loses its taste, how can it be restored? It's no longer useful to be, except to be cast out and trampled under the feet of humanity. And so we face these three possibilities. In the culture in which we live, Shall we be the green bug on the green leaf? No. Shall we, be, shall we watch the paint dry as the Titanic sinks, focusing on matters of no consequence? Or shall we catch the rhythm and enter into the conversations, focusing, engaging people in their philosophy and their statuary and their poetry as we describe something much larger and much bigger, something full of hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.